want to start with um, reminding you all that there's a little billboard there in the back that uh, I made about the, the great reversal. And uh, the great reversal is basically the idea that, that God has exalted in Christ. He has exalted the humble and he has uh, lowered, lowered those who have exalted themselves. And so the, uh, uh, there, that idea and that theme features prominently in the passages that we read this morning, right? We, uh, we read about a, uh, uh, we've read about Jesus' crucifixion, and we read about how at that crucifixion, the only person who didn't cast names on him was a centurion, right? The, the person who should not have known who Jesus was is the one who said, this is God's son, right? That's the great reversal. Uh, where were the disciples? They were out there. Uh, it says they all deserted them. And all, they all deserted him, and, uh, and yet the women are there. The women are supposed to be, uh, in their culture, they thought of women as unreliable, right? As, as not being good enough. And so they're, but they're there. The disciples are off doing whatever they're, they're doing. And the women are there. And then also, uh, in, this, uh, in this series of passages, who does Jesus present himself to first? Uh, the women who sat at the tomb. And uh, that's a really interesting feature because if you were making this story up, there's no way that you would go with that, right? Because women were not allowed to testify in court. Uh, in this, they, women were considered, again, unreliable. And so if you were just going to make this story up, there's no way that you would put women as the first pe- person to see it because that would then throw out your whole case. But there they are. And Jesus appears to them. And it says, after they'd met with the angel, they left and they were afraid, right? They were afraid. And, they, and Jesus, for, he shows up to them and he says, Hey, don't be afraid. I'm here. I'm with you. And so uh, that's not my sermon for today, but I just wanted to mention it because uh, it's a big it's a big deal. And I, I want you to, to remember that that's back there. You can reflect on it and you can <laughs> and you can think, think about it anytime you want. However, my sermon is going to be about another kind of reversal. I want to talk about life and death. Imagine that. Uh, and I want to start by talking about some seeds. So I got three varieties of seeds here. The first one is uh, mammoth sunflower seed, right? And they think about a seed, and the purpose of a seed is that in this thing is the potential for life, right? This seed holds the, the potential to create life, and then specifically this one has the potential to create, you want to see it? Go for it. Maybe share it when you're done with it. Um, I got more. So these sunflower seeds are, their purpose is to create the life of a sunflower. Now one sunflower is going to live for how long? At the absolute best, how long do you think a sunflower might live? Two months, three months, something like that? 21 days. Depends on who's taking care of it. Uh Right, so, the, so let's just say three months is the maximum potential of life that this seed carries. The maximum potential of life that this seed carries is three months. Okay, Think about it that way. That, the purpose of this seed is to do a three-month life job. Okay, Three-month life job. I've got uh, over here, I've got a tulip bulb. This one does not have the potential to create life anymore. <laughs> this one is dead. <laughs> But a real, a, uh, a not-dead tulip bulb 
also has the same purpose. You want to look at it? Go for it. Also has the same purpose, which is to uh, create life, to do, uh, to create tulips. And this one has a lot more life potential than the other seed, right? Than the sunflower seed. The sunflower is what we would call an annual, and I don't know whether people actually call bulbs perennials, but essentially that's what it is, right? So uh, it, I, the average lifespan for a tulip bulb is 10 years. Okay. Now, in a really, really good conditions, which Oregon happens to be really good for tulips, uh, we most of ours are going to live something closer to 20 years in the ground. So that that bulb has a 20-year life potential, right? 20 years of life potential. I have over here another seed, and this seed. Okay, now this seed is super, super small. It's like, imagine taking a one flake of uh, oatmeal and like shrinking it and making it even lighter than oatmeal, okay? And this seed is the seed of, anybody want to guess? What? A mustard seed. Yeah, well, that would be really good, but no. <laughs> This seed, now the thing I want you to, this seed has more potential for life in it. You've already had it. Come on. Just relax. You can see it in a second. Uh, for those of you who don't know, that's my kid, so I can, anyway. Um, the, this seed has more potential for life in it than maybe any other seed in the entire planet. This seed can produce life that could live for 3,500 years in the right conditions. This seed can produce the largest living thing on the planet. It's a giant sequoia seed, right? This little thing, little tiny thing. Actually, it would be great to make a sermon about how it's so tiny and so it can make, but that's not actually my sermon at all. It's the life. That's what I want you to think about is the life potential. This thing you planted in the ground, it has to be on the, uh, let's see, the western slopes of the Sierra Nevada between uh, somewhere between um, the southern end of the Sierras and Yosemite. So it's a really small area, but if you plant one there, <laughs> it can potentially, the, the largest one that we've ever cut down was 3,500 uh, rings, 3,500 years that this seed has a potential. So its job is to produce life and it can do it really 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 well under the right conditions but it still has its limit right a giant sequoia will not live forever no matter what no matter if you get rid of all the saws in the world you get rid of all the forest fires no matter what it's going to die this seed is not eternal this seed has its limit now its limit is crazy longer than the sunflower and way longer than the tulip but they all have limits and now we all most of us uh have the capacity to create uh to create life as well and we can create life that can last absolutely at best what 120 years oldest person's like 118 years so we have our own limit of how long life can last that we create as most of it, I think the average age for a man is 77, and the average age for a woman is like 80 or 79 or something like that in America. So we have a we have a very short limit too. 
on how much life potential we have. I want to talk today about why there are limits. Why not just live forever? Why not just not have limits? This is actually my very, very artistic and detailed drawing of the temple <laughs> and the curtain in the temple. So, see, I didn't I do a really good job of making that curtain just be straight and look exact. Anyway, uh, in the temple, there was the uh, Holy of Holies, and then there's this temple, and on the other side of that is the presence of God, right? The footstool of his throne, the, the Shekinah of God, the glory and presence of God, which in their minds was was captured in that one spot on the other side of the curtain. And why couldn't God be on this side of the curtain? Because that is where sin and death is. Because that is where there are limits, and God is not limited, so God must be on the other side of this curtain. We have these limits. These limits are imposed upon us. We are broken. We cannot, even the giant sequoia will die. We will die. And the Bible is pretty specific that death was a curse. Death was the result of alienation from God. Death was the result of rebellion from God. Death was the result of us wanting to be like God. The snake says, the serpent says to Adam and Eve, don't you want to be like God? If you eat this fruit, you will be like God. And the exact opposite happened. God apparently intended us to not die and we would die. We would die. And so this limit enters into our world and this limit doesn't just carry death, it carries decay. It means that I can't I can't love my wife perfectly. It means that I, I, can't, uh, I can't run as fast as I would like to run every time I go out to run. <laughs> I just I have limits. You have these limits. I wish, man, if I could do things perfectly, I think I probably would. <laughs> like, don't you think? Like, if, I, if it was possible, I'd probably, I would shoot for that. That's where I would go. But I'm limited, and you're limited. We live under this, we live on the other side of the curtain, right? We live in this place where sin and death reigns. And so what happens on the cross, what happens on the cross is that Jesus takes that death and sin and the penalty and the curse and whatever other theological term you want to throw on him, and he holds it on his shoulders. And he dies. The death that was for us comes to him. And at that moment, it says, at that moment, the curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. At that moment, the curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. That separation, that idea that God has to be here and you and I are separated from him. You and I must live under this conquering reign of sin and death and terror is broken. Now that's really good. That's really good, but that's not the end of the story. If you're like me, uh, my, my history is that on Easter, I, I, have, I have no recollection of resurrection sermons on Easter. We always preach about the cross, right? Because we think about the cross as being this, this. That the cross kind of accomplishes everything, right? Jesus even says, it is finished on the cross. But that's actually not the point, right? It goes further. It doesn't just tear the curtain. It's not just that the curtain is torn. Jesus goes beyond that. Jesus, uh, Paul puts it this way, that we get, we get reconciled with God through his death. Right? Jesus pays the penalty. He, he holds the consequences on himself. He takes that 
consequence on himself. And in his death, in his sacrifice, the, the reconciliation is captured. The, the curtain is torn. But in his resurrection, in his resurrection, we move from that death and sin to the life on the other side of the curtain. He makes it possible because he conquers the death. He destroys the death. He leaves death in the grave. And we, when we put our faith in him, it's like his, it's like the seed of that power is planted in us, and it is incorruptible. It is not, it is not a limited seed. It is bigger than all of the stuff that we face. It is bigger than all of the inner selfishness and the inner greed and all of my sin and all of my shame and all of my brokenness. This seed is not limited. It blows the giant sequoia out of the water. And yes, so Jesus pays the penalty on the cross and the curtain is torn. And then by overcoming death, by conquering that death, by conquering the consequence, we enter into him and we live in his resurrection. We walk in newness of life, as the New Testament says. Now there's this fascinating passage that we read today, that uh, I think often gets overlooked, but it's so weird. It's just so weird, and we just we don't know what to do with it, so we just don't talk about it. But I want I want to show you this passage fits exactly into what I'm talking about. It says, as Jesus has died, it says the tombs also where there's this earthquake, and the tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And after his resurrection, again they don't come out until after his resurrection. That's when he conquers their death. And so then they can come out. After this, after his resurrection, they came out of the tombs and entered the holy city and appeared to many. They did what? The, what happens on the cross and what happens in his resurrection is so powerful that there's this ripple effect. Right? It's not for him. Right? We expect it to just be his death and his resurrection, but he intends to share it. And it's so shareable that it bursts out. And raises these people. It's like dropping a big boulder inside of a lake or something. It just can't be contained. And it is a sign, a symbol to us of what will happen to us when we inherit his resurrection. When we allow the seed of resurrection to be planted in us. Then we walk in newness of life. And then uh, again about the, uh, now when he, when he, the centurion, and those with him who were keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and what took place, and they were terrified and said, truly this man was God's son. Just a really brief aside. I just, all, I think all the Gospels include this idea, and I just love it. I love that they made sure, I remember all the Gospels were essentially letters, right? Somebody wrote it down so that it would be sent out to a Christian community somewhere. And so that Christian community, think about the first Christian community who would read the, the, the book of Matthew or the book of Mark or the book of Luke. And they would get to that place where Jesus is being crucified and they might have wanted so badly to hate the Romans. They might have wanted so badly to say, see, the Romans killed, killed him. Let's, I don't know, let's be insurrectionists and rise up against the Romans and take our revenge for killing our, our Savior. But each one makes sure to include this little piece of the great reversal, right? 
that no, the thing that's happening, the offering that's happening is so powerful, it will pierce the heart. The seed will be planted in the heart of the executioner. So don't count anybody out for where, where is good soil for this seed to be planted. Now I'm 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 not this I didn't come up with this seed idea just out of poof thin air. Uh, this is actually comes it's on the cover of your worship folder. It comes out of First Peter chapter one, and there's this brief little uh, metaphor that Peter uses here, and it says, "You have been born anew. When we put our faith in Christ, we are now birthed, birthed into something new, out of sin and death. Right? Sin and death was our first birth. We are." Sons and daughters of Adam and Eve, and we inherit everything that comes along with that, sin and death. But we have been born anew to something else. But not of perishable, not, not of Adam and Eve, not of, of things that are decaying, not of things that are dying, but of imperishable seed. Through the living and enduring Word of God, for all flesh is like grass. And all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls. Right? We have limits. We have limits. We will die. Even the giant sequoia will fall. We all flesh. I don't know that giant sequoias are flesh, but you get the idea. All flesh is like grass and its glory like the flower, the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. There is something deeply healthy about admitting this to ourselves, that we have limits, that we are subject to these, these, uh, this decay. So many of us uh, act like we've got it all figured out. So many of us resist this limitedness. We resist this perishability. We resist the idea. Not, I'm not just talking about the young 20-something who skydives one weekend and gets a motorcycle the next and goes, I don't know, doing crazies. I'm not talking about denying that kind of death or whatever. I'm talking about just acting like I'm not, I'm, I'm not part of this whole scheme. I'm, I'm, I'm limitless. I, I'm not broken. I'm not hurting. There's a plague of that within the church, especially these days. But there's goodness in admitting it. By admitting it, then we get to inherit that seed which goes beyond. And so there's this, again, the, this idea, we've been born not of a perishable seed, but of the imperishable seed through the living and enduring Word of God. And the Word of God there, he says a little later that the Word of God is the gospel. It's a message about Jesus that he's talking about. So it's not like if, you know, I, uh, I heard a story one time of some friends who went to somebody's house to pray that these people, that there was a, a woman with cancer in the house and uh, they went from, from our church, the church I grew up in, they went to her house uh, to pray uh, for her to be healed. And uh, they asked her, do you have a Bible in the house? And she said, no. And they said, well, I'm sorry, you can't be healed. <laughs> That's not what this means, right? Like, it's not like, okay, I've got my Bible. Now I've got my imperishable seed, right? It's the message about Jesus. It's the message about his death and his resurrection and his life and his incarnation and his joining with us in humanness and his being subject to, to the consequences of our sin and our limitedness. I want to I end with another passage out of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you, if you want to go and you want to reflect on some of these ideas, I highly encourage you to just read all of 1 Corinthians 15. It's just beautiful, beautiful stuff about the resurrection and what the resurrection means. 
But in there, he, in there, Paul quotes from the book of Isaiah, and he says, Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks to God through who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Where, O oh, death, is your sting? Death has been swallowed up in victory. By placing our trust in him, we are carried to this newness of life. Paul puts it in Romans. He says that we have, when we are baptized, we are, we are buried with Christ, and now then we get to be resurrected with him. There is this constant theme that the resurrection leads us to new life. We are born anew. We now participate in his resurrection by putting our trust in him, by putting our hand in his hand and saying, lead on. We walk a different way. We lead a different kind of life. So we'd say, he is risen, and we'd say, he is risen indeed, but I might also say, we are risen. Which you would then say? Amen. <laughs> and so if you come to the place where you want to rise with him, Needs, that, that's another, uh, I just opened a whole can of worms. But <laughs> we, simply, we simply say yes to him. We simply say, I need you, I want you, I put my trust and my faith in you, and we rise. It doesn't make us better, it doesn't mean we don't die. It means that that which is planted in us does not die. We live on be resurrected with him and to live in his glory, to live forever, for all eternity on the other side of the curtain. To live in all eternity on the other side of the curtain. And so we're, we are going to participate in communion today. And I invite you to come, and I welcome you to the table that symbolizes this whole idea that life has come from his death that death could not hold him down, that he has shed his blood for us. He has broken his body. He has come so near and so dear to us that he is, he's taken on our very personal penalty. He's taken on our very personal curse. He's taken on our very personal weakness and limitedness and brokenness, and he has died. And I invite you to remember that as you take from the bread and the cup. And I invite you to remember also that that's not the end of the story. That he says to each of us, trust me and come rise with me. Trust me and be made new. Humble yourself and be exalted. So whenever you're ready, take some moments to pray. Whenever you're ready, come and receive the Lord's Supper.